0: I assume you're listening to this podcast because you enjoy a good adventure story. Along with the High Adventure podcast, Accidental Productions has produced a number of films in the web series El Cap Bridge, which features discussions with famous and not-so-famous climbers that hang out in what's called the center of the climbing universe. Our feature film Assault on El Capitan takes you up on the second ascent of Wings of Steel with legendary Big Wall climber Ammon McNeely as he tries to solve the mystery of the most controversial climb in Yosemite history. The climb that involved lies and deception and even attempted murder. Assault on El Capitan is available on streaming services and platforms everywhere and is free on Amazon Prime. like my old man, he told me so. Welcome to episode six of the High Adventure Podcast, where we're telling the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. As usual, if you're new to us, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes to help you get up to speed as to where we are in the story. But in this episode, we're going to discuss the continued siege on Lower Merced Pass Lake, Another attempt to retrieve the bodies of pilots John Glisky and Jeff Nelson and yet another mysterious lawyer. So let's get started, shall we? What would you do if you discovered a plane crash? Would your answer be different if the plane you found contained 6,000 pounds of marijuana? In 1977, some people had to make that decision. My name is Jeff Vargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Before we get started, I want to give a shout-out to Tony Lewis and his band The Mushrooms for their song, Hard to Fly, which we've used in the last couple episodes Tony's an old friend and a long-time Yosemite climber. I know he's out there listening, so thanks a lot, Tony. Our audience continues to grow, and I appreciate you all listening and sharing the podcast with friends and on social media. After the last podcast, I noticed something interesting in the podcast statistics. I've mentioned in previous episodes that we have an international audience, and it's continuing to grow, and it's great knowing there's people out there listening in Norway and South Africa and in Croatia. But the stats from around the United States are what caught my eye in the last couple weeks. In the previous episode, we discussed the conspiracy possibilities of the U.S. government having more knowledge of John Glisky and his operation than they were maybe willing to admit. We talked about the Black Book, possibly containing phone numbers with Washington, D.C. area codes. And looking at the listener location stats, I noticed there was a big spike in listeners from both Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. Neither city had any listeners prior to the last episode, and now both cities are in the top ten of locations in this country with the most downloads. Washington, D.C., obviously, is DEA headquarters, and Atlanta has a division office that covers the southeast. John Glisky's plane was purchased and registered through a Florida-based organization. Are government agents all of a sudden interested again? Did I touch a previously quiet nerve? Or is it all a coincidence? Not sure I'll ever find out, but who knows? Maybe I will find out if I really did scratch the surface of somebody that wanted to remain smooth. In the timeline of our story, it's now late March and approaching early April. Locals looted the crash site at Lower Merced Pass Lake for almost two months and were soon joined by a new and different type of treasure hunter. People from all over California and who knows where else were descending upon the Yosemite Valley and ultimately the crash site. The situation was evolving into a potentially dangerous situation as locals were being challenged by a more aggressive group that were not so interested in getting along and hanging out as much as they were in grabbing everything they possibly could and getting back to civilization. Sometimes they grabbed more than just the floating weed personal property, and personal safety were also challenged. The change in the situation at the lake began in early April. Some of the valley locals that made their way to the lake in these days found a more hostile and paranoid group of salvagers. The place was starting to look like a refugee camp. Makeshift tents and enclosures had been built, and folks were now basically living up there and drying the salvage weed right on site at the lake. They clearly were in it for the long haul. Back in the valley, people were continuing to show up and some were asking rangers how they could get to Lower Merced Pass Lake. It truly was a strange request even for rangers who are accustomed to answering some very strange questions from tourists. One of the strangest questions I've ever heard asked of a ranger was do they actually turn off the water to Yosemite Falls every night? Well, in case you were wondering, the answer is no. They don't turn it off. It runs all night, all day. So random people with clearly no outdoor experience were coming to a park the size of Rhode Island and asking about the location of a five acre lake. Law enforcement rangers on patrol on the Glacier Point Road noticed and reported a serious rise in traffic and parked cars near the Mono Meadows Pass Trailhead. Mono Meadows Pass Trail was the high country entry point to the lake. There was also an increase of people lost in the backcountry. Nothing serious, but several ragged hikers made it back to the road empty-handed, and it was later learned that someone trying to divert the new competition at the lake had turned the trail signs 180 degrees, sending hikers in the opposite direction of their destination, but more dangerously sending them into serious backcountry wilderness destinations that are not for the inexperienced and certainly not for the ill-equipped. The increased activity by outsiders caused the government to begin flying over the site regularly and monitoring the site from the air. It was one thing when a few climbers and locals carried some weed out of the mountains. It was a whole other thing when Lower Merced Pass Lake became a destination location for people who had never set foot in the mountains before. With noticeable traffic in the high country and inquiring street urchins turned outdoorsmen in the valley, red flags were going up. It seemed like it was time to go in and secure the site. Law enforcement always knew they'd be going back into the salvage site, but they hadn't expected it would become a military-style siege. The valley locals were also beginning to change. A breeze of anger and jealousy and distrust began to whisper through Camp 4. As the weed was drying in tents and cabins and caves all over the valley, a new group of people had moved in and took up residence. The whole vibe in the valley was changing. The outsiders were coming in, but the valley locals themselves were evolving into something unfamiliar. Once a mellow, laid back, agreeable, but determined group, these hardened outdoorsmen were also fiercely competitive. So when money started to flow into the valley from the sale of marijuana, new tents dotted the campsites of Camp 4 and new cars filled the parking lots. With money no longer an issue, cocaine replaced marijuana as the drug of choice in the valley. Previously out of the price range of the weed-smoking-climbing community, this was no longer the case. Cocaine brought a new and unfamiliar personality to the valley locals. Camp 4 was experiencing theft amongst its campers, which was never something that was ever really thought about. But now there was money in the valley, and the equipment and gear in the valley was new and much nicer than before the Green Rush. It was during this time that a well-known valley local, while camping at the lake, had a so-called outsider walk up and begin taking his camping gear right in front of him. Thinking these were just soft, easygoing climbers, the guy met his match when one of the climbers grabbed the saw he was using to cut the lake's ice and held it to the throat of the thief and warned him that one more step might be his last. Things were getting desperate. In Fresno, at Bob's Dive Shop, a couple guys wandered in one day and asked about renting scuba gear. Bob pretty quickly figured out that these guys had no scuba diving experience and were most likely headed to the crash site. Bob Tosteson, who owned Bob's dive shop, was the diver who had been enlisted by the government to do the first dives on the wreck to try to retrieve the bodies of John Glisky and Jeff Nelson. After turning the two budding Jacques Cousteau's away, Bob called the Feds. If you're out there and don't know who Jacques Cousteau was, uh, I'm not going to be pulled down that rabbit hole of explanation You should Google him, he was an amazing man, but know that he was the co-inventor of the aqualung, which is essentially modern scuba diving gear. Okay, enough of that. With the tip from Bob and the increased number of people coming into the valley and going to the crash site, it was time for the feds to formulate a plan, which they did. And that plan would take place on April 13th, 1977, and would later be known as Big Wednesday. It was also a big Wednesday in St. Paul, Minnesota, if you had tickets for the Led Zeppelin concert that night. Or if you were a fan of the band ABBA, their song Dancing Queen was number one on that day. The Rangers described the scene from the air as what looked like a makeshift mining camp with a ragtag assortment of tents and lean-tos and tree-strung tarps and fire pits. Today it would look like almost any city's homeless encampment. But in 1977, deep in the woods, this was an alarming sight. From the ground, they heard the helicopters before they saw them. Planes had been flying over the site for a while, so initially no one was too alarmed. But this time something was different. The sound was louder, and the helicopter motor is more aggressive sounding than a high-flying small plane. The helicopter was coming in low and from behind the ridge. As the chopper popped up and crested that ridge and descended into the lake basin, the people on the ground at that point knew what was happening. It was a raid, or a reclaiming of the site, depending on if you were on the chopper or watching from the ground. There were about a dozen people working out on the ice, and several more who were in the camps on shore. There weren't many places to hide or to go. The people at the lake didn't know if there were rangers approaching on the ground in support of the chopper, so it was complete chaos, on and all around the lake. The rangers hit the ground with assault rifles and sidearms. This was a full military-style assault. Thankfully, it ended quickly and peacefully with the mass exodus of the salvagers off into the woods and down the trails, leaving everything behind, including camping equipment, tools, and lots of marijuana. It was during this time that the only two arrests in the entire saga happened. Two guys were moving fast down the trail from the lake back to the valley. They had packs full of weed and had no explanation for what they were doing on that trail with these giant backpacks full of marijuana. On their way down to the valley, a ranger who was walking up the trail stopped him, and as luck would have it, he knew both men. What can you do with two guys with packs full of weed hiking 20-plus miles outside of any civilization? It's not really feasible to handcuff them and walk them back down to the valley jail, and that would take 30-plus hours. So they were, in effect, placed under arrest and told to report to the magistrate's office the next day and turn themselves in, which they actually did. One of the guys was 16 and the other was 21. And the next day when they appeared before the circuit court judge, he threw the case out of court. The two guys were not read their rights. So the judge cited an illegal search as the reason for throwing the case out. There was a growing belief that all this was actually the result of the government leaving all that weed unattended at the lake. They knew about it. They didn't secure the scene. So entrapment was also one of the discussions in the courthouse. Honestly, what did the government think was going to happen when it was learned that marijuana was found it was available and left unattended by the feds and all within a long day's walk from the valley not to mention the valley locals including rangers themselves had taken their share of the weed the sixteen-year-old was never identified in public records the twenty one-year-old was named and identified in records and if you're interested in who he is you can do a bit of research and find that out for yourself but who really cares Would this story be any better if you knew his name? I don't think so. So for the next two months, two armed rangers working in 10-day shifts guarded the crash site and patrolled the area. So after the site was secured and cleaned up after the big Wednesday invasion by the feds, two armed rangers working in 10-day shifts were stationed at the lake to guard the crash site and patrol the area. As the ice on the lake melted, the bundles of weed continued to pop up to the surface, and the rangers snagged the bundles and pulled them on shore. The rangers did have a few occasional visitors from um, the ragged weed hunters that hadn't got the news that the crash site was now guarded and secure. In one case, Ranger Dennis Burnett found a young man wandering through the forest wet and disoriented. Ranger Burnett brought the shivering and nearly hypothermic kid back to his camp. After a quick call to the station, Ranger Burnett learned that the kid had a warrant for his arrest back in his hometown of Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is a beach town about 250 miles west of Yosemite. The Ranger put the freezing kid in a wetsuit and a pair of handcuffs and sent him into the tent for the night. A brief snowstorm overnight prevented a helicopter from coming in and landing to pick up the prisoner. So the next day, Ranger Burnett walked the kid the 26 miles to the road where he was met by a warm but uncomfortable government vehicle for the long ride back to Santa Cruz. On another 10-day shift, Rangers Ray Kennedy and Mike Osborne were in camp one afternoon when they saw movement across the lake. Circling the lake in opposite directions, they were carrying Colt 223 rifles and sidearms. They soon met on the other side and found six young men, none over 21 years old, and all struggling to survive the elements. They quickly threw their hands in the air at the sight of the rangers and the rifles, and the young men were all yes sir and no sir. They were in fact happy to see the rangers. It turns out they had been wandering the mountains for two weeks looking for the lake and were suffering quite a bit. Ten miles into their hike while looking for the lake, they ran into a Park Service trail crew and had made fun of the crew for working so hard. When they told the crew there was tons of weed to be found right up the trail, why were they working so hard? They then made the mistake of asking the trail crew for directions. The trail crew did give them directions. Maybe members of this trail crew were the same practical jokers or turned the sign the wrong way, but they did give the hikers directions, but they were certainly not the directions to Lower Merced Pass Lake. Somehow, a week later, the six geniuses made it to the lake and were welcomed by Rangers Kennedy and Osborne and their Colt 223s. By June 16, 1977, John Glisky, Jeff Nelson, and the Howard 500 aircraft had been submerged for more than six months. The salvage company contracted by the park to pull the wreckage from the lake was almost done. Still remaining was the removal of the bodies, which had yet been found. Their crew working on the wreck began to think that the pilots possibly had exited the plane before the crash. They'd been working this wreck for several days and there was no sign of the bodies. As one last section of metal was pulled out, the cockpit became accessible. A diver went down to attach the cabling to another section of the fuselage to try to pull more of the plane out of the lake when a body popped up to the surface like a cork. The diver then went down into the cockpit and found John Glisky hanging upside down in the cockpit exactly as Pam had envisioned him in her dream many months before. After both bodies were brought on shore, the gruesome task of amputating the fingers of each body was done. The fingers were sent to Washington, D.C. so the fingerprints could be analyzed in order to make a positive ID. Pam Glisky was notified that John's body was recovered and she was asked to come and identify him. She declined to do so, possibly fearing for her safety, and perhaps in some way it allowed her to believe that John had disappeared but was alive and well and living on an island somewhere. She'd always held out hope that he was okay. Pam had also cooperated with the DEA, and there was in her mind the suspicion that John had been murdered, and whoever murdered him was still out there and aware that she was still out there too. Pam kept a very low profile for years following the crash and the recovery. Who is she afraid of? The Moto Magic Syndicate? The government? After all, John and Jeff were not the only casualties of that crash, in her mind. If they could bring down John's plane, they could easily take care of her. And she had a daughter to think about. It wasn't until 30 years later that a friend of Pam and John's in doing research for a book about the crash, that Pam finally saw a photograph of John's body. Pam broke down as 30 years of uncertainty and emotion were brought to the surface and reality was realized. Pam, after coming to grips with the loss so many years later, said that John would have gotten a big kick out of all the commotion the crash had caused and would love the idea that these people were coming to the lake and grabbing all that weed. That scenario at the lake was exactly what John would have done, she thought. So the plane was salvaged, the weed or what was left of it was all secured, and the bodies of John Glisky and Jeff Nelson were recovered. But there were still some unanswered questions. Who owned the plane? That question should have been easy enough to answer with all the government agencies involved. The plane was registered to Red River Ranch Corporation. But Red River Inc. was a fictitious corporation that didn't really exist. To try to get to the real owner, the feds filed drug charges in Florida state court against the broker who had sold the plane. As part of a plea bargain, the broker named a California-based lawyer as the real buyer and owner of the plane. It seemed like the trail was about to end, but strangely, the U.S. attorney declined to prosecute that lawyer and owner of the plane who had been, for years, smuggling hundreds of tons of marijuana into the United States from Mexico. It seems the broker who had sold the plane and identified the owner somehow lost his memory and refused to testify against the lawyer. So what could have changed his mind? Moto Magic? The DEA themselves? How far up the chain could this story go, and who would be exposed by a trial? This operation had cost the Park Service and the government a lot of money and effort. So while not pursuing a criminal case, the Park Service... U.S. Customs and the National Transportation Safety Board initiated a civil suit to be reimbursed for the recovery, salvage, and removal of the plane. A $20,000 invoice was delivered to the owner. That bill was never paid. When was the last time you heard of the government issuing a bill to someone and not demanding payment? If you fail to pay your taxes, you'll go to jail. If you're levied a fine by the government, you have to pay. If not, they'll put a lien on your property, they'll charge you interest and penalties for every day your payment is late. Not in this case. In this case, the lawyer just essentially said, no thank you, and moved on. Why was the DEA not involved in the civil suit to recover the salvage costs? These are a couple questions that will probably never be answered. But if I get more listeners from Washington, D.C. after this episode, or if my taxes get audited next year, then... Maybe that itself will be an answer. And what about all the people who went to the site and gathered up bundles of weed? What happened to them? By all accounts, individuals didn't make as much money as has been reported over the years. It seems that several of the people made between ten dollars and $20,000 for their efforts. That's between forty-five dollars and $85,000 in today's money. Most made a lot less. But in 1977, that's a lot of money. Remember, many of these folks were living on less than a couple hundred dollars a year. It's true that there were a couple houses built in the Yosemite area and a couple more houses were purchased. Several new cars and trucks were spotted in parking lots and the Yosemite mountaineering shop sold a lot of new gear during that year. And several people disappeared to pursue climbing in other places around the country and around the world. Ron Likens, the young guy who originally discovered the crash but came back to the valley not knowing what was on the plane, Had made another trip to the plane and retrieved a bundle and paid his college tuition for the next couple years for his effort. Eddie Masoy was able to buy all the equipment he needed to pursue his dream of climbing El Capitan. Eddie went on to climb El Cap more than 50 times during his lifetime. There's a lot of speculation about outdoor equipment and clothing companies being started with seed money from the sale of the weed. That speculation is just that, speculation. The rumored companies are well-known and well-established, but you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who will tell you definitely the money to start those companies came from the plane. But it most likely did. I want to thank you for listening to Season 1 of the High Adventure Podcast and the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. We're already working on Season 2, and I hope you'll join us for what promises to be one of the strangest and most obscure stories ever to take place in the mountains. This one has it all. Plains, mountains, desperate determination, and a long series of bad decisions. Thank you for listening. High Adventure Podcast is produced by Accidental Productions. Follow High Adventure on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. We'll see you at the crash site. You know my says I'm a lot like him. me so snorking a big old fatty with a shitty did grin he told me bro you'd better hit the road and don't look back let say hang you for all my sins it's hard